Welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Robbie Straczynski, and thanks so much for joining us on episode number 39 of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. Today's guest is Linda Johnson, a Poker Hall of Famer and WPT Honors recipient. Linda has done it all in our beloved game. As a player, Linda has won bracelets, trophies, and everyone else's chips in decades of cash games. On the industry side, she co-founded and was the studio announcer for the World Poker Tour, publisher of Card Player Magazine, co-founder of the Tournament Directors Association, and partner in Card Player Cruises. And to top it all off, the First Lady of Poker is just one of the kindest and most genuinely awesome people you'll ever meet. Linda, welcome to the Cards Chat Podcast. Thanks. I wish my mom could hear that introduction. She'd be so impressed. <laughs> I think she knows what you've done. And uh, and, and our thoughts go out to her. She's a, a wonderful human being, as you show the world uh, on your social media feeds. So, um, my, you know, like an introduction like that, there's, you know, it's not just words. It's a lot to unpack. You've truly had a full and remarkable career in poker, Linda. I know in advance that one hour isn't going to be nearly enough, but we'll try to cover as much ground as we can. So let's start with what it is that you love about so much about the game of poker. Oh, that, there's so many things I love. Well, first of all, I, I love winning money and <laughs> that's always makes me happy, but I love the challenge. I love the sociability. Um, I think that people who play poker seem to uh, stay young a lot longer than people who don't. And um, certainly it, you know, it stimulates the mind, but uh, I always have three goals when I go to play and one is to win money, of course, and one is to have fun and one is to make sure that my opponents have fun. And all three of those are very important to me. Nice. So when you say poker helps you stay young, exercise the mind, like what, what do you mean? Can you give like an example of that? Well, I mean, you have to think when you're playing poker, you use your brain a lot and using your brain keeps you thinking and keeps you stimulated. And therefore, it keeps you young, in my opinion. Sure. Well, I like that. And if you have seniors events of folks, you know, 70, 80, 90 years old who are still playing the game at a, a pretty decent level. So I get that. Right. Sure. I mean, I've, I've given instruction at senior centers before. Um, you know, I, I just think that playing poker or playing any kind of games is good for you. I like it. Very cool. Well, who doesn't love playing a game? Um, and you say any kind of game. You play all the games, both in, in catch games, in tournaments. Do you have a, a preferred game or, or mix of games and, and variants to play? And oh, we'll start with that one. Do you have a, a preferred variant? Well, my favorite uh, game is Omaha, eight or better. And I like to play Limit Omaha, eight or better. But as you said, I, I play all the games. I like all the games. Uh, I'm kind of a dinosaur. And so all these new things that start with a B, Badoogie, Badesi, all those things are not uh, in my top five list of things. I, I love all the horse games, Hold'em, Omaha, Raz, Stud, Stud 8. Um, I like Triple Draw. Uh, I do like Badoogie, actually, so I shouldn't have used that as an example. But um, it's, it's just fun. Uh, I like mixed games because you get a variety of things. Of course, mm -hmm. like a lot of times you're out of sync, you get the Raz hands when you just move to uh, stud. And but um, you know, it, it makes you think. I also think it's an advantage um, if you play well at most of the games, which I think I do, um, because a lot of opponents have not played all these different variations, and so 
I have a little bit of an edge as a player when I'm in a horse game, I think. Interesting. So yeah, like there, there may be one or two that, you know, like you said, they're, they're a little bit weaker in and, and that's where you'll pounce. Yes. Yeah. Never, never a dull moment in mixed games. Um, do you prefer like a cash game or, or tournament format? Oh, I love them both. I, I think I, nowadays I prefer cash in the past. It was probably tournaments, but um, now, you know, I have a lot of other things that I'm doing in my life besides just playing. And so sitting at a table for two or three days straight, you know, 12 hours a day, no longer is appealing to me as it used to be. So I would say for now, cash is probably my preferred over, over tournaments, but I can certainly uh, get excited about a tournament sometimes. What's the, the most, that, you know, the tournament that excites you the most? Is there a particular one? Well, I think all poker players like the World Series of Poker Tournaments. You know, mm -hmm. it's, um, and, and for me, it would be like the Omaha and the Raz event. Raz is the one I won my bracelet in, so I'm always going to be partial to that. Um, during the World Series, I do play a lot of Omaha, uh, just plain Omaha. I spend a lot of time probably more in those cash games than I do in the tournaments. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I, I looked at your Hendon mob record and I can't help but smile and be in awe. You've got a list of almost 40 years worth of poker tournament caches. That's amazing. Um, like you said, you know, it's, it's a game that keeps you young and, you know, to be able to continue to do something now that you've been doing for decades is, is quite incredible. <clears throat> um, your biggest you know, cat. I'm very lucky, Robbie, because okay. a lot of, a lot of the people that I know they play because they need to play for money. And they don't really enjoy playing poker. And um, as you said, for decades, for 40 years plus, I have enjoyed poker. It's it's a passion for me. I look forward to the next hand of poker I'm going to play, whether it be tomorrow or uh, a month from now. It's going to be something I'm going to enjoy. And uh, I think that, you know, if that's your passion, like poker is my passion, then it's not work. And it's just enjoyable. That's amazing. I th it's, to be able to say that about anything is a true blessing in life. And of course, you know, that's, we're talking about poker here. So that, that's pretty cool to be able to say. Um, now you referenced your, your bracelet win in 1997. Uh, your biggest cash, you know, as per the hand in mob, there was uh, that bracelet win. It was a $96,000 cash in the $1,500 Raz event. Um, can you take us back to that moment and, and sort of share your memories? Oh man, you're gonna ask me to cry, aren't you? Because when I think back about it, I do get emotional. Hmm. Um, uh, that was kind of a tough day. It started out as a really bad day for me, the day of the final table. Um, and it started out bad because uh, I was owner of the Card Player Magazine at that time. And one of my advertisers uh, had sent in a cover. It was their turn to have the cover. We used to have properties on the magazine instead of players on the front mm. cover. And um, it was very objectionable for me. It was, uh, and believe me, I'm not a prude, but this was like a picture of a woman um, in Daisy Dukes, very low cut. She had like a sander between her legs and in a suggestive position. And so I called the advertiser. I said, no, this isn't going to work. And, and then uh, he said, well, call me back at one o'clock. And so I called back at one o'clock and he's got all his attorneys on the line with me and they're threatening me, you know, that this is our cover and this is what we want. And if you don't run it, we're going to stop advertising with you. Ooh. And back then in 97, card player was not as big as it is now. And I needed every single advertiser right. and they were kind of beating me up on there. And I, I just said, look, that's my final decision. I mean, you want me to come down and speak to your women every three months and, and do lectures for them. And I said, you know, I'm going to feel, you know, bad if I were to put this on there. And as much as I hate to say no to an advertiser, 
sometimes you have to. And that is my final answer. Wow. And so they said, well, we, we, we're probably not going to continue to advertise. So I was kind of shook up about that because they were a full page advertiser at the time. And, and that was like at one o'clock and the tournament started at four o'clock, the final table. So I thought, well, I need to distress and I need to go down there and kind of breathe and, you know, get this off of my mind and move on to the poker. And so when I got down there, um, they had all these, they had grandstands set up around the table and they were full, you know, had, wow. at one thirty they were already full. That's and amazing. there were people that had hats that they had made overnight that said, go Linda. And they had signs and everything. And I just took one look at that and I thought, Oh, I feel bad for my opponents because I was so empowered <laughs> by all this support, you know. And this and, is not the main event. This is a fifteen hundred dollar res event. That's amazing. Normally, normally there wouldn't be ten people in the audience, but I think they were excited because there was a woman, you know, at the final table. And in back in '97, that just didn't happen very often. And uh, I did go on to win it. And then um there's an interesting story about the headlines do you, do you have time for stories or of course okay so the headlines the next day read second women in history wins bracelet at the world series of poker and i said no i'm the third woman because i was there when uh, vera richmond won and i was there when barbara enright won right and so so i went to the head of the world series at the time and i said uh, what is the deal here i said why isn't Vera's name in the record books? And they said, well, because she was a bitch. And now don't laugh, Robbie. She was, this one oh, was, uh, was very difficult. You know, she had a mouth like a trucker and, you know, worse than that, worse than a sailor. And she was nasty, but I said, look, there's plenty of men who are in the record books who are assholes. You can't just not put her in there, you know, because she was not such a nice person. Right. And it, it did take a couple of years, but finally she did get her name in the record book. So okay. technically I am, uh, and realistic, I realistically, I am the third woman in history uh, to win a, a gold bracelet at the world series in an open event. Uh -huh. And of course it was a thrill and it was, you know, I felt excited, not just because I had won it because um, I might be able to inspire other women to play because I had won it. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, the money's always good. I set up a scholarship fund for uh, UNLV students. And that was back uh, then already after the bracelet win. Yes. Wow. Yes. With the prize, with the prize money. Yeah. Uh, we had, they had a, a choice of programs. I picked one of um, students dealing with adversity in their life. And Amazing. like I had one that, you know, his father was in prison and his mom had left him. And I had, one that their adversity was having 12 children to a single mom. And, and so we had all these kids over for a luncheon and it was, it was very exciting. Also, I didn't know back then, you know, today the bracelets are all very standard, but back then um, they would pick you up in a limo and take you, I think it was to Macy's. I think that's where they got them. Uh -huh. And you got to choose what you wanted on your bracelet. That's so, so cool. So all of a sudden, I'm like, let me see your bracelet. Let me see your bracelet. Because I didn't know what to put on my bracelet. <laughs> and I uh, I finally ended up putting my just the name Linda and the final hand uh, uh -huh. on my bracelet, you know. Amazing. And um, it, was, it was something that I still value and treasure and, you know, just for the sentiment of it. Do you ever wear it? I do wear it, actually. Um, not real often, but... Um, you know, I'll go in spurts where I'll wear it every day for a few months and then I don't wear it for a couple months, but uh -huh. you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. There's a big fight in my family. Um, who's going to get it when I die? <laughs> Everybody wants it. So. 
That's beautiful. That's incredible. I mean, if I could ask also like the first part of that story, um, you know, really, I can imagine the, the pressure, you know, on you going in, everything worked out okay, you win the bracelet, like, I mean, what happened? What was the end of that story? Did they continue publishing with you? And not only did they continue, but they doubled. They went to what they call a double truck ad. And uh, I was I was shocked. I was thrilled. Um, and I was so glad that I had stood my ground and not caved to them. That's yeah, it beautiful. was a story that ended well. well that's not, see, that's not just being inspiring as a winner at the tables, but sticking to your principles and, you know, that it, it should work out that way. That's a beautiful it's thing. Good. Wonderful. Yes. Do you have um, sort of, you know, I guess aside for this, you know, your bracelet win, do you have a, a particularly memorable place or time or, or table draw that you've played with that you'd love to go back to and revisit? Well, I, I have uh, some favorite hands that I've played throughout uh, history. And one was in the World Poker Tour that I played against. Um, uh, and, oh, gosh, we need to edit this. Um Escondiari. Antonio. Antonio Escondiari. Okay. I played this hand against Antonio Escondiari, and it was a hand where um, I had the deuce six of diamonds in the big blind, and we were down to about 40 players, and he and I were the chip leaders uh, at our table, mm-hmm. and he, he had been raising a lot of hands, and uh, I was in the big blind, and he kind of been raised it, so I called with the deuce six of diamonds. Cost the blinds for fifteen hundred, three thousand. He made it six thousand, and we both had a half a million behind us. So I called, and um, I flop bottom pair ten four deuce, and I called a bet, and then a king came, and I called a bet, and then a queen came, and he bet the river, and I beat him into the pot with a pair of deuces, knowing that they were good, Ooh. and it was, you know, uh, things were different back then. This was probably oh, almost twenty years ago. And back then, people did not bet one pair on the river for value like they do today. Mm-hmm. And so my thinking was, um, he, he's got to have two pair or better or nothing. And uh-huh. uh, so I snap called. And because it's hard to make two pair, let's face it. Sure. And uh, sure enough, he had the three five of hearts. Well, he had flopped the monster. If I had seen his hand, I would have just given it up because he had like 20 wins. Of, you know, uh, but I was lucky. And. Uh, that I, that my instincts were good. And there were all these young kids at the table and it got really quiet for about 10 seconds. Nobody said anything. And then all of a sudden one kid just went, wow. you know. And that was the favorite hand that I ever played. I think my favorite um, tournament win probably was the California State Ladies Poker Championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just enjoyed that one a lot because playing heads up. I was playing against a very aggressive woman. I like to see aggressive women at the table. And, uh, and so I, I, you know, when, when I called on the button uh, with two aces, she moved in because um, she was so aggressive. And of course uh-huh. I, I, the aces held up and I won the championship with that hand. So there's memorable hands in tournaments. Uh-huh. And that was a long time ago as well. Interesting. Uh, with, with the Antonio hand, the way you described it, it seemed like more you were understanding of the situation and circumstances. Did any sort of tell or physical read have anything to do with the way you played that hand? Not a tell or a physical read. It was just the fact that, you know, back then people didn't 
bet three streets with one pair today that, you know, if he had Ace King, he would bet it for value on the river. But back then, you know, it was kind of like, you know, just bet two streets if you have top pair, good kicker, and then check on the river. And so I decided when I called the turn, even though there are um, what, four over cards uh, to my pair, I just thought I'm, I'm calling. And so I snap called and, and it was, that's my favorite hand ever. So, so here's an interesting one then, and I'm sure it's something that would possibly resonate with quite a lot of people, our listeners, people watching as well. Um, you know, World Poker too. you're on TV and that, like, it's, it's that much more, you know, shown, like your, your hands are live. Is there any sort of concern of, you know, like you said, he's either got two pair or nothing. Like if he's got the two pair, are you concerned about looking dumb in front of all these, you know, of people course, who are watching? Of course I was, you know, and uh, <laughs> I mean, if you look dumb, you look dumb, but, uh, you know, think how smart you're going to look when, when you're right. And, right. <laughs> um, you know, anytime you're playing on TV, you're always worried about, you know, am I going to make the right call? And, you know, how am I going to look? Um, when I played, uh, oh, here's a funny one. When I got heads up, on a World Poker Tour event with um, Christy Gazes, we got heads up and all of a sudden I had a hot flash. I was about 50 at the time. And, um, you know, and it was funny because during the heads up interview that they had with uh, Courtney Friel, she was the hostess at the time. And she says, well, Linda, all of a sudden you've broken into a sweat. Are you nervous? And I said, no, Courtney, you'll get old someday too. You know, it just happens. And so luckily we only played about four hands of heads up because when you get a hot flash, you cannot help it. You're just, you know, there's nothing you can do. And sure. so they edited, they did a good job. If you, if you ever watch that final table heads up, you'll see, I finally, you know, in the last four hands of heads up, I have a towel on my lap, but oh my um, you know, luckily uh, she, she got Kings against Jack's and um you know, all the money went in and she wanted, I just wanted it to be over at that point. I was wow. so miserable and so embarrassed that, you know, here I am just drenched. And <laughs> sure. Well, that's certainly, uh, you know, some, some things are, are beyond your control of the table, of course. Yeah. And something that you guys will never understand. You no, know? no, I can never claim to, to understand or, or want to <laughs> specifically have to be in yeah, that type of hot flash when your head's up. So. <laughs> well, before you moved out to Las Vegas to play poker for a living, you used to work for the U.S. Postal Service. Um, are there any lessons or skills that you picked up while working the real job that have helped you or, or given you sort of life wisdom during your career in poker? Well, you know, I rose up the ranks real quick in the post office. I, I started out on the letter sorting machine, then I became the logistics coordinator and I became a supervisor. And I was actually first up to be postmaster in my region when I got the poker bug, let's call it, and decided to leave. And so, you know, during that, it all happened within seven years of my career. And I think, you know, that the life lessons that working for a living and punching a clock teach you are, are a work ethic. And, uh, you know, the, the, you know, to, to, to do your best and to um, obviously customer service skills. And, um, you know, I, I just think it gives you a, a, a good uh, background, you know, to, to go on to other things. Mm -hmm. Do you ever like, think or had, had, were there times where when you, while you were playing or doing your other jobs in the poker industry that you found yourself sort of reflecting on that experience that you had, uh, you know, over the seven years working in the postal service? Well, you know, I loved my job while I did it. And I'm the kind of person that once I leave something, I don't look back. Same thing when mm -hmm. I owned Card Player Magazine. You know, I couldn't even, you know, that was my whole life. And the minute I, I sold it and walked away, then I moved on to something else. So, mm -hmm. 
you know, I just kind of say, well, if I was if I was still there, I'd probably be postmaster general, and stamps would probably be two dollars each. So, <laughs> okay, that's the uh, the alternate timeline. <laughs> okay, uh, well, you mentioned Card Player Magazine. Obviously, plenty of professional poker players are quite happy to just grind it out for a living, focus on playing. But you opted to do more. Um, what first you compelled you to sort of take the plunge into publishing? The reality of the situation was that I had played poker at that time for a living mm-hmm. for, about, uh, let's see, I moved there in 1980 and I bought it in 92. So for 12 years, all I had done was play for a living. Mm-hmm. And after a few years, you kind of start to feel like, what am I giving back? What am I contributing? I go down and I take people's money and I'm not giving back anything. And so I thought I have got to get somehow, I want to stay in poker because I love poker, but I need to get in the industry side of it so that I can give back. And so I actually went on the very first card player cruise in December of 92. And I had so much fun on that cruise that I went to the owner of the card player magazine and I said, you know, how can I get involved? I never want to miss another cruise. And, and they, uh, the owners were Phil and June field and they were up in age. They were, you know, she was 65 and he was 70 and they said, well, we're ready to sell the magazine. And um, I got a couple of friends together and we were all poker players. We knew nothing about running a magazine and uh, we didn't have the money to buy it either. And so we went to a venture capitalist and we begged for the money and told them, you know, we would work, uh, put in our sweat equity and stuff. And, um, and luckily June and Phil agreed to stay on for six months as a consultants to teach us the ropes. And um, everything went well from there and we learned the business and it, uh, our timing was perfect because this was in 92. We actually took over in 93. And at that time there was only three or four States in the union that had legalized poker. And then immediately, you know, I think it was in 93 that Foxwoods opened and Atlantic City opened. And, you know, all of a sudden we've got all these uh, card rooms that Uh want to advertise, but the magazine, when we bought it, it was a newsprint magazine, black and white, and they didn't want to advertise in a rag. That's what they right. call it. Uh-huh. And so uh, we had to make the decision to uh, take this magazine and, and turn it into a real glossy publication that looked good so that we could get these uh, big advertisers. And that was a scary one for me because it was going to add $100,000 to our print bill. In the first year, we'd only made like $20,000. Hmm. Uh, so it was a gamble. Yeah. I was against doing it, quite honestly. Uh, my partners talked me into it. We had a deal back then. There was three of us who owned it, uh, Scott Rogers, Denny Axel, and me. And we had, when, when anything came up for a vote, we had a rule that two adamants, I mean, one adamant could, you know, if one person was adamant, that could outweigh two people that were, well, I'd rather not do it that way. And so on this one, I was adamant no, and they were both adamant yes. So, of course, two adamants win <laughs> over one adamant. And uh, they were right. And uh-huh. I, I admit I was wrong. And as soon as we went glossy, all the advertisers came in with these big, hmm. beautiful full-page ads. Wow, go figure. Unbelievable. I mean, when, when you first took over the magazine, like you said, it's yourself. You had a couple partners. But as far as actually doing the production, the distribution, how many people were involved, I guess, employees of you know, the actual take, the concepts, the articles, whatever, put the magazine together, get it out there at the beginning. And then you said there was obviously a lot of growth along with poker. It grew from that amount of people to how many people? 
Oh, well, when we started, we had about four, four or five employees, and it was a, about a 50-page publication. And by the time I sold it seven years later, it was 132 pages, and um, we had uh, 12 employees. Wow. That's uh, that's incredible. Unbelievable. What a, what a story of success. Um, well, you know, you said you had no publishing experience, and I, you know, I imagine there must have been a point where you may have felt you got into something a little bit over your head and to the extent perhaps even you're worried about the business failing. So if I'm wrong, say so. But if I'm right, how do you face a situation like that and how do you make sure things work out? Well, we we had a saying, the three of us, and it was fake it till you make it. That was our <laughs> saying. And we, even though we didn't know what we were doing, we acted like we did. We pretended that we did. And, uh, you know, with the help and guidance of June and Phil, before too long, we really did get into it and, and, and understand it. You know, now Denny was not a marketing guy and he was in charge of um, he was in charge of finances. Scott was in charge of marketing and I was in charge of the editorial content and the magazine itself. And I was you know, I had done pretty well in English. So I was an editor and, um, you know, public relations was good. We I traveled. Oh, I visited more than 200 card rooms and um, I just I, I loved it. And we grew into our jobs and we became quite good at it. Sure. And I, I remember seeing I mean, even now I've seen pictures of you, you know, standing at the you know WSIP main event final table, sitting there, taking notes, doing live reporting, that sort of thing as well. I mean, there's so much you do as a publisher, literally from A to Z. I mean, over yes. the, the seven years that you that you owned the publication, can you point to, I don't know, if not one thing, then just a, perhaps a couple things that you're most proud of? Um, well, I'm proud of that, that we met every deadline. Um, we were hmm. never late. Um, and, and I figured out, I, I'm proud that I could still play poker at the same time. What I figured out was I could do my editing at the poker table. And so I would take the articles with me to the poker table and I would play a um, very funny story. One time I was playing uh, and it was during a, a tournament and, and this guy in the table was being a real jerk. And, you know, I, I was kind of paying attention to him, paying attention to playing and paying attention to editing. Right. And I hear him say to the dealer, um, you know, uh, that's not right. And, and the dealer said something back to him um, and used a, a big word. And he said, I'll bet you can't even spell that word. And he kept badgering her. I bet you can't even spell that word. Why are you using words you can't spell? So I said, well, I spell that word P-R-I-C-K. Now, of course, he's, <laughs> your readers are going to hate me, but you know, now he's going to turn his attention to me. And he says, um, well, you know, you're not allowed to read at the table, you know, and that was the rule in the card room. Okay. And oh, I really? Said, okay. Interesting. I said, well, then I guess you should call the floor because I already had an agreement made with the card room that, you know, I could edit while I played. Okay. And so, of course, he called the floor and the floor told him to quit being an ass and <laughs> that I was allowed to do it. <laughs> well, and like you said, also in, in kind of a roundabout way, but I'm sure this was also part of your intention, it's you took his vitriol away from the dealer. I know you've always been very against dealer abuse and almost like you took it upon yourself and you know, like just distracting, you know, you know, the, the target, that sort of a thing. Yeah. I, I think that all players have a responsibility to try to keep the environment nice and pleasant and to try to help the dealers. And, you know, I mean, when you get a dealer upset, 
that dealer is not going to perform well. Mm -hmm. Um, That's going to, you know, that that's just bad for everyone. And so I I think we should all do our parts to make sure that, you know, we stop the abuse at the poker tables. And we have, we have to a great extent. I mean, Mm -hmm. back when I first started playing, there was a lot of abuse. It it was not at all like it is today. And, you know, I always say that I wouldn't have wanted my mom to go into the card room with me. I'd have been too embarrassed, but, you know, things have changed and, um, you know, abuse has lessened in many places is non-existent in other places, you know, it, it does exist. And I always blame the card room manager if it exists because uh, like on our card player cruises, we have no abuse. Right. And the reason we do is because we, we put it out there that if you, if you can't behave, you're not going to be able to play here, you know, on all our um, flyers that we send out prior to the cruise, there's a big, in a big box there, it says, because we want you to have fun, we will not tolerate any abuse in the card room. And I say that at, at the opening party, you know, and therefore we have no abuse. So anytime there's there's abuse in your card, you need to look in the mirror and that's why you have it. Yeah, you're reminding me of something that one of my old sports coaches used to tell me. It was a, one of his favorite phrases, you know, be a mensch or you sit on the bench, you know, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a reason I remember it. Um, so I'm not 100% sure ex- on the exact timeline here. So maybe you can know, sort of correct me if I'm a little off, but you sold the magazine in order to get involved and, and devote yourself fully to the to the World Poker Tour. Is that sort of how it worked out timeline-wise? Well, I didn't sell it in order to do that, but that was the result of me selling it was that a new opportunity came up that I would not have been able to do had I still been the owner of Card Player Magazine. And the way it happened, um, Mike Sexton and I were in the in the rainforest in Costa Rica and Steve Lipskin, who founded the World Poker Tour, flew down and he told us about this idea that he had. Um, he wanted to put this tour where, you know, on TV and where everybody could see the cards and uh, he needed backers for it. And so we said, well, we, we think we can get the financing for it. He needed uh, $3 million. And when we went back, we went to an investor and we convinced him to put the money up. And um, that was Lyle Berman. Lyle was great. He he just wanted to, he said, do I have a chance to 10 times my money? He said, if I have a chance to 10 times my money, I'll, I'll throw $3 million over the fence. But he said, if all I can do is double it, I, I'm not interested. And we said, yeah, we, we think you're going to do that. And uh, he gave us six months to come up with, te- uh, I think it was six properties we had to get signed up. And uh, we did that in like six days. And that's wow. how the poker tour started. And that's how Mike got his job as commentator. And I got right. my job as uh, a studio announcer. Right. And, I, and so so you were back, I guess, to just playing, just playing poker at yeah. that time. Yes, that's okay. correct. Got it. And then this opportunity came up and uh-huh. and it was all happened within six months of me selling the card player magazine. Wow. And a very fortuitous time. It was from one one beautiful job to another beautiful job. Yeah. I loved working for the World Poker Tour. Uh it was really a family. I loved traveling with Mike and Vince and all the production people. And uh we, you know, we went all over the world and we loved it and we put on a, a great show, I think. And obviously, you know, as, as far as you know, your role in that, and you said he said got to line up six card rooms. You had said earlier, you know, as the publisher of Card Player Magazine, you know, what better experience is there? You said you visited two hundred card rooms. So if the first six don't say yes, you've got another one hundred ninety plus yeah. to to go. Well, to. luckily, the first six did say yes. You know, um, unreal. 
<laughs> and I had good relationships with these were all big card rooms, you know, like the Commerce and the Bike and um, Kathy Raymond from Foxwoods and, and Doug Dalton from Bellagio. And they all signed on immediately just because they had faith that uh, Mike and I could pull this together. And, and we did. Um, Mike was a good uh, was a good partner for me. We did a lot of things together. Um, you know, we uh, we did some announcing at the World Series before we started the World Poker Tour. We did the Tournament of Champions together. That was a big thing at, at it, during its time. And yeah, there's um, some footage on YouTube if anyone wants to to search it out. And an, yeah. an incredible thing. And now it kind of looks like old and dated, but at the time, nothing of of that nature had ever happened before. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. yeah. And Mike w- was, was great because he never forgot that I gave him his start in poker. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do forget, but he never did. He always acknowledged it. He brought me in. Uh, and, and when I say we did the tournament of champions, believe me, Mike did most of the work and I just helped with some commentating. Um, but we did, we did some marvelous things together. It was a lot of fun. So, so the history of the World Poker Tour over the years, it's kind of come out through articles, through some videos and stuff. I'm kind of wondering about those early days, though, beyond that, you know, the meeting in the rainforest, you get the funding. Can you describe what it's like once you kind of have those initial pieces in place, working with Mike, working with Steve Lipskin to put the WPT together and, and what season one was like? Well, yes, they had brilliant, brilliant producers that worked with them. Um, there were so much, so many miles, I forget the statistics, miles and miles, hundreds of miles of cables just to mm. put one show together. And they were brilliant. You know, the sound technicians, the the uh, camera technicians and everything. And when it started, it was fun. The first one was at Bellagio. And I'll remember that one because I got to wear a pink sweater. After that, I had to wear black every time. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it was just a lot of fun and and. People, we made celebrities out of poker players, mm. basically. Uh, up until that time, you know, you didn't tell people you were a poker player because they didn't understand it. They didn't think it was a good thing. But then all of a sudden, you, you know, poker players are celebrities. And, um, you know, Gus Hansen was at that final table and Scotty and lots of great players. And it was just so much fun. And traveling with them was amazing. They, they took good care of the crew. And back then, they had, um, instead of the Royal Flush Girls, when I was there, there was no Royal Flush Girls, okay? The year after I left, I was there the first six seasons. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't going for it, you know? But then the Royal Flush Girls came in the year after I left, and they started doing the money presentation. Mm-hmm. So for the first six seasons while I was there, the casinos would do the money presentation, and they would all try to figure out some unique way to mm-hmm. bring the money out, uh, to present the money, you know, like at Foxwoods. They had great um, ethnic dances, you know, mm. in Indian dances. And then in Costa Rica, this was my scariest moment ever on the World Poker Tour. Um, in Costa Rica, they decided their national product was the ox cart. So they were going to have six oxen bring this money out. And I went out and I looked at these oxen. Now, these are 2,000 pound animals. <laughs> And they had handlers with shotguns and they oh were like stomping the ground and snorting. And, you know, and, and I thought, oh, my God, we're going to go inside this small arena and they're going to stampede and everything is going to this is going to be a disaster. And then once they got inside the arena, they were as docile as little cats. They just uh-huh. wanted to prance around and show off. And 
And so they carried the money around the, the arena, you know, in the ox cart. And it, it was fabulous. Wow. <laughs> what an incredible story. I, mean, I, I love also that, you know, people know, people, fans of the World Poker Tour, people who watch poker on television, you see what's on your screen. You see the players, you see the presenters, you see, you know, what, what's, what's referred to as the talent but you don't see the behind the scenes production crew, the people laying the cable, the producers that, you know, sitting, you know, with, with holding the cameras and, and uh, you know, the grips, all that stuff. And I love that you gave them that shout out because the production doesn't come together without that full on team effort to make the poker players into stars to make the talent look good like that. So, and, and by the way, I, I think the decision to go with the Royal Flush Girls was a good one. Um, I think they add a lot to the show and I've met most of the ladies and they're very, very good at their jobs and very nice people. So, no point. So I, and now I think one. they're the Royal Flush crew. So they've got a couple of male members as well. I so. heard that. Yeah. yeah. I heard that they have men too. That's good. I think good. it's Joaquim uh, Tirosh and, and Brendan... Johnson, I think is his last name, but uh, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, a, a full crew, both men and women. I'm that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we look back now, it's almost 20 years uh, history of the World Poker Tour and, you know, its success really is kind of like a fairy tale story, but I imagine in those early years, you know, the first few years that you were involved, there may have been some bumps along the way. Would you say, you know, could you perhaps point to any particular challenges you faced within your role uh, in the organization and, and how you overcame them? My biggest challenge was uh, not dropping my microphone pack in the toilet when I went to, to the bathroom. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> there's some personal information, but uh, the very first time, you know, I, I go into the bathroom Hold down my pants, and of course, it falls right into the bowl. And now oh, I come out and I say to Jan, I said, What am I going to do? I've, I've dropped this. And she goes, Well, you have to tell them because otherwise, they're going to try and fix it, you know, and it's not going to work. So you have to tell them what happened. And so I was very embarrassed, but I told them. And so they gave me another one. And sure enough, on break, there I went and did it again, you know. And then after that, every time I left the stage, they would take it off of me. And then it was my turn to come back on. They put it back on. Um, but that that was my own personal challenge. Okay, that is fair, and it's a yeah. funny but, story. You know, Steve did a great job of, um, you know, he was very hands on, and he did a great job of of organizing the crew, and everybody did uh, the work they were supposed to do. And there were not a lot of hiccups, and and mm -hmm. not a lot of problems, or if there were, they didn't make us aware of it. Put it that way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, like that type of uh, professionalism is the type of thing that's going to make the production grow and hopefully, you know, 10x Lyle's money. So that, that, that worked out okay. Um, and then there, there's, there's one story that, that happened. Um, sure. so after three or four years, it gets pretty roped. You know, same thing. Mm -hmm. I'm out there all the time, you know, uh, announcing. And, you know, they wanted me to be very generic, very, just, just stick to the facts. Don't, you know, this show is not about me, obviously it was about Mike and Vince and they were the color commentators. And all they wanted me to do was keep the audience involved and announce the hands so that Mike and, and Vince knew what people had and how much the bets were. And, sure. and that was my job. And so it got kind of boring after a few years. And so Jan and I came up with this bet. Um, she would put down 10 words, we called it the 10 word game. She would write down 10 very obscure words that had nothing to do with poker. Um, and it was my job to get those words into play without getting the producer upset because he did not like me saying anything other than poker. 
<laughs> and so um, I remember one, and, and we would bet $20, you know, she would cross the words off as I got to them. And, you know, most of the time I was able to get them in, but, but one time, my favorite time ever, we were in Atlantic City and she wrote down boardwalk, stilettos, hookers, uh, white house, limousine, um, <laughs> these kind of things, you know, and I'm, uh-huh. and I decided, okay, I'm going to mail this my very opening, you know, cause I was a, allowed to go out and greet the audience right okay. before we actually started so i went out there and i said hey i'm so happy to be in atlantic city you know i was on the boardwalk this morning i can't believe all those hookers out there in stilettos and you know i got like nine of the ten words you know into one into my opening uh monologue <laughs> and jan was devastated you should have seen the look on her face she was so upset and uh, getting the, the tenth word was very easy but i nailed it and then you had uh, 20, and, and Mike, Mike and Vince did not know what we were doing. Oh, well, gosh. Pretty soon, pretty soon the media people caught on and they would try to guess what the 10 words were because, you know, and so I was doing a seminar with Mike Sexton five years after I retired. And I told the story about the 10 words and he looked at me and he said, you know, I never knew that that's, he says, you would sometimes just go off and I never knew what you were doing. Now I get it. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, you, you did mention uh, Jan. I mean, uh, Jan Fisher. We'll be talking about her very soon. A couple questions from now, um, but it's pretty cool. I imagine uh, you had you know the twenty bucks for some good saltwater taffy uh, on the Atlantic City boardwalk. Yes, yes, on the boardwalk. Um, until today, you remain uh, a partner in Card Player Cruises, as you mentioned. At what point did you get that business sort of off the ground? And how did you balance, I mean, because that's sort of also in the background while you're doing your publishing, while you're on the World Poker Tour, how did you sort of balance running, you know, the, the card player cruises stuff while you're doing your main job and playing poker as well throughout the years? Well, when when I sold the magazine, at that up until that point, card player cruises was part of the card player magazine. And then... Okay. That was really what I loved best about the job was the cruises. I mean, let's face it, who doesn't like to cruise, right? And so when I sold the magazine, I said, you know, I want to keep the cruise business. And so we, uh, I just sold the magazine and we separated Card Player Cruises, which is why it still has the same name, even though it's owned by different people. We're not the same entity. entity. And um, so, you know, I was doing the World Poker Tour and I had a staff to to run the office of Card Player Cruises and I think, you know, they say busy people get things done and I was very busy and I got things done. So it um, it grew to be a very, very good business right now. Of course, uh, for the last year and a half, we haven't been able to cruise because of the pandemic. Um, but I did something really smart. Uh, Jan and I did something really smart a few years ago, and that was we hooked up with Mark and Tina Napolitano and we got them as business partners and um, they now have the majority interest in the business and they run it really well. I mean, Jan and I kind of ran it as a hobby. If we made a little money, it was okay, but we had a lot of fun and, you know, we didn't really have to make that much money um, in order to, to keep it going. And so uh, Mark and Tina came in and they're very good business people. And we had our, every year after they came in, it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then in 2019, we had our best year ever. And I credit them for that. That was your 25th anniversary year, right? Yes. Yes. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, right now we're waiting for cruising to start again. And it will. And we've already, we're taking lots of bookings now for as soon as we can go back. Excellent. I'm I'm not going to lie. It's on my list of something I hope to get to do someday. Uh, You would have more fun than than you could stand. I mean, 
Because you, you have fun just playing, you know, just going to a casino and playing in a card room. And so imagine doing that while still getting to go to shows and go, you know, to see exotic ports. And um, It's good to have things to look forward to. So hopefully yeah, we'll make that happen. We, we have a lot of tournaments on the cruises and we have seminars, we have parties. And, you know, as I said, it's a no abuse card room. So you will never hear more laughter in a card room than you do um, on one of our cruises. And I imagine, you know, the way you, you know, it's not, you're not even trying to market or sell it, but that really is what it is. That's what I see in testimonials. And, you know, I'm sure the, the wheels are spinning, you know, for all the folks uh, here listening and watching, like, yeah, maybe that sounds like a good idea. You know, once, uh, once things clear up, the dust settles, let's get on a boat and, yeah. and do some cruising. Um, you also authored a uh, poker strategy book, as well as hundreds of articles over the years Nowadays, it's it's very common for poker pros to teach and to share their strategies. There's training sites all over the place. But back in the day, it wasn't really so common. So what made you feel comfortable at that point in time already doing that and helping other poker players get better? Well, you know, when I first started playing, there was only a couple of books out. You know, it's not like today. I've got probably a thousand books in my book collection today. But back then there was three or four titles. And so I, I taught myself how to play poker. And I, I always say everybody has a niche for something. You know, I, I'm not artistic. I'm, you know, there's a lot of, I can't sing. There's so many things I can't do. But um, poker for me was, it was just like right up my alley. And from the beginning, uh, I loved it and I was successful at it. And, and so then, uh, you know, part of the giving back after years was, wanting to help other players, especially females. Now, we have done seminars all over the world. We, we've consulted in places like Singapore and, you know, England and all, fabulous places. And I've done seminars and uh, I just love to teach uh, because, you know, as much as you can enjoy poker when you're winning, you enjoy it even more, right? Yeah, and of course. <laughs> poker, poker is a game that you can excel at, you know. Um, when I, we taught boot camp, WPD boot camp for many years. And, you know, we always used to tell our students that, you know, there are a lot of professional poker players. There's no professional craps players, no professional roulette players, because those are games that you can't win at, but right. poker, you can win at. That's the good news. And uh, the bad news is that in order to be a winner, you're going to have to really devote yourself to the game and to learning and to, um, you know, reading and to going to discussion groups and to talking poker and, you know, poker needs to be your life if you want to be really, really good at it, right. you know, you know, you can just be okay, you don't have to be a winning player, you know, you can be a break even player by just putting some time into it. But if you want to get real serious about it, uh, you can win at poker because your decisions count in poker. And again, that's something you've known, believed and, and acted upon already, you know, decades ago and have been teaching yes. and you continue to do so today on, on the cruises, you continue to teach and, and give seminars once in a while, right? That's correct. Yeah. And, and a lot of them now are more about telling stories. It seems like people want to hear stories. Um, they want to know the behind the scenes thing. Mm -hmm. I remember in uh, the year 2000, uh, it was actually 1999, but I got invited to speak at the 2000 Chicago Humanities Festival. Oh, wow. And so I said, oh, oh, sure, I'd love to do it. You know, so I get my speaker's packet and it says, your topic is Las Vegas in the year 2000. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, so, you know, I, I go to the uh, Chamber of Commerce and I, I get online and I'm, I'm trying to find out everything I can about Las Vegas because right. I just assumed it would be about poker, right? 
And I memorized everything. I have a very good memory. And I, I could have told you back then how many inches of rain we got, how many passengers came through uh, McCarran Airport, you know, how many years it would take if you wanted to sleep in every hotel room in Las oh Vegas. You know? I could tell you everything about Las Vegas. And I studied and studied for weeks going into this. So I get okay. to the Chicago Humanities Festival and they introduced me. Jim McManus was on our um, panel. You probably heard of him. Sure. Uh, Okay. Very, very famous poker author. He wrote um, uh, Positively Fifth Positively Street. Positively Fifth Street, and yeah. Cowboys um, Full, and, right? And other books. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, great guy. So he introduces me and says, that, you know, I have a bracelet. And pretty soon all the hands go up and every, you know, everybody, all they wanted to hear about was poker. And they spent the whole hour asking me poker questions. So I wouldn't have had to do any preparation at all. Uh, <laughs> but... Still, still a good study in, in preparation. I'm I sure some remember. of those facts are interesting. To yeah, I still remember all that. I mean, at that time, city center was being built and I knew everything about that and about our school system and just everything. And I didn't need any of it. Very cool. Well, I, I did mention we'd be talking about uh, your BFF, the wonderful Jan Fisher, um, for almost as long as you've been in the poker world. Uh, you've known her like you. She's a, mem a fellow member of the Women in Poker Hall of Fame. Um, how, did the how did the two of you first meet? And at what point would you say that camaraderie kind of began to blossom into working together? And of course, uh, the genuine friendship you have. Well, we met, I would say, around 82, 1982. Wow, it's, it's been about 40 years that we've been friends. Uh, and she was dealing poker back then. And there were not a lot of females in the poker room, either as dealers or as players. You know, there might be one or two female dealers and, and one or two other women playing poker. And so the women sort of gravitated to each other to be friends. Mm -hmm. And um, we became friends. And then she... I uh, went back to deal some games, charity games in Chicago. And then she called me up one day and, you know, after I had bought the card player magazine and she said, you know, I want to come out and I, you know, I'd like to, if you have any work for me. So I actually hired her to deal on one of our cruises and we started hanging out and um, she was very, very reliable, did a great job. Um, at, at one point she had an opportunity to invest in the business and she did. And um, then we became business partners and, um, we are just best friends and uh, soulmates. So wow, that's beautiful. We, we enjoy teaching together. We enjoy traveling together. Um, we just have a, a very wonderful friendship. Yeah, it's really wonderful. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I get a lot of credit for things. And, you know, behind the scenes, she's the one who is supporting me and helping me and pushing me. And, you know, um, she doesn't get enough credit. I've borne witness to seeing the two of you interact for, for a good few years now, and uh, I can certainly attest uh, to the, the beauty of that type of relationship. And uh, folks, uh, you know, if you're listening, if you're watching, uh, if you're interested in hearing from Jan Fisher as well, perhaps we'll have her on a future episode too. I'm sure she's got some, I know she's got some amazing stories to tell. She has a lot of stories, Plus, she's a great speaker. It was very tough for me in the beginning. I was so afraid of public speaking. And I remember, you know, one time on a cruise, I actually had to leave. You know, I always wrote out my opening monologue, the whole thing uh, and all the, my tips for cruising and every, the card room rules, everything that I was going to say because I was so nervous about it. And so one time um, I, she was behind the curtain and I said, um, I said, I, I, I have to go to a meeting with the captain 
um, Jan's going to finish for me because I had a panic attack right in the middle of my speech. Oh my and um, Jan did come out and finish it. But I used to hate public speaking. It was painful for the audience to hear me because my voice would crack. You know, now I'm a microphone slut. I love it. I mean, just give me that mic and don't even try to take it away from me. Um, but it took years and years for me to become that. Whereas Jan, from the beginning, she could just get up there and talk and be her goofy self. And she wasn't self-conscious at all. And she was a natural there's a lot of lessons in there, folks, uh, of, you know, perhaps you're, whether it's at the poker table, there's a particular play or maneuver you're afraid to try. The more you do it, the more you try. And, and you know, obviously for life skills as well, the better you get at it. And uh, you too can be a microphone slut someday. Uh, be, <laughs> besides uh, Card Player Cruises, one other venture you co-founded along with Jan, as well as Matt Savage and David Lamb was the TDA, the Tournament Directors Association. Uh, this was back in 2001. Over the last 20 years, it has grown to encompass thousands of members in dozens of countries. And, our, and you know, nowadays our industry kind of takes for granted the existence of the TDA. Um, can you describe what obstacles you faced in forming that organization and how long would you say it took to reach sort of like a, a tipping point where that became kind of like the de facto governing rules body? Well, do you have all day? Because it's a long <laughs> story. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Matt Savage, it was his idea. He came to me uh, around 2000, 2001, and he said, you know, I think we should try to standardize rules. And I like the idea of that. And um, so we got Jan and Dave Lamb involved, and we decided to have a summit, and we invited card room managers. And I think the first year we had maybe 35 card room managers, and everybody loved the idea of standardizing the rules as long as it was standard with how they wanted to do business and how right. they did it at their individual houses. And so the first year, you know, we decided in order to make a rule, we needed to have 80% uh, participation in agreement. And, and we couldn't get that on anything that had any meat to it. You know, I mean, we were able, I think we adopted 14, either 12 or 14 rules the first year and they were not, they were rules like the button's going to go clockwise. I mean, they were not real rules, right? Because we couldn't get agreement on it. And so the second year I started off the meeting, you know, I think we doubled our attendance. The second year I said, now, listen, if we can't come up with some real rules and some real agreement here, let's just disband this because, you know, it's stupid to, to not have, you know, rules that have meat to them. And, right. and I said, what we're going to do this year is we're going to take a vote. And, you know, a lot of the votes were 50-50. I said, in order to get 80%, we're going to take a re-vote and we're going to go with what the majority people said. And we're going to ask those of you who are in the minority, if there's any way you can live with this rule, even though it's not the way you want it, even though it's not the way. I said, we're going to have to compromise. We're going to ask you to change your vote so that we can pass some rules. And then ever since then, um, you know, we've conducted it the same way and we've been able to um, get a lot of rules together. And, and TDA is something that I'm very proud of. The first probably 12, 15 years, Mike and Dave and Jan and I basically did everything ourselves. I mean, we answered all the questions. We we, um, we, we were lucky we adopted uh, Mike Bishop and he, I don't know where he even came from, but boy, he was organized us and he, he was so great and still is today with our, our conferences and everything. But the four of us would answer all the TDA questions. And I mean, we would get the most ridiculous questions. And I remember one in particular, and it was Jan's week to answer. And okay. the question, you know, we got a lot of questions from home games. Sure. Well, you know, this isn't really a, 
this applies to tournament, but you know, we would we would give them a decision because you know a lot of times they would freeze the pot and wait for us to you know to give them a decision. And so um, it started out like this. It says you know we're playing a home game and the the uh, window was open and a bee came in and stung the dealer and the dealer dropped the deck and then they got to the point of what their question was how to you know how to proceed from there you know what should we do and Jan wrote back close the window. <laughs> And then she proceeded to help them the right decision. But, you know, so, so for years, the first at least a dozen years, we had no sponsors. And the four of us uh, basically fitted, uh, we footed the bill for the entire wow. uh, TDA and our meetings and everything. And then luckily, um, we've had a lot of cooperation. We, we had, a, we started getting sponsorship maybe six or eight years ago. And um, we got Aria, Sean McCormick from Aria is Magnificent. He, he got the casino to donate, um, you know, the conference room for us. And, Brilliant. You know, so we, we've been able to have hundreds of, of tournament directors at meetings and we've been able to get things done. Definitely a good dude. Shout out to Sean. I believe he was episode number two of the Cards Chat podcast and something I love to do. Yeah, we've got, you know, a good few dozen now episodes after you listen well, how come to I'm number 39 or whatever you said I was. Yeah. <laughs> We're going al- alphabetically, alphabetically. Yeah, I see where I rate. Okay. <laughs> But it's always a good idea to go back and listen and watch uh, all the other wonderful episodes of the Cards Chat podcast. And of course, thanks all of you uh, for tuning in. I got this just so much. I want to go on every single answer you give. I feel like I want to go deeper, but we do have to get through these. Uh, our time is beginning to run short. I, want, I don't want you to call the clock on me, Linda. Okay. Um, all right. so, I'll try to be a little less wordy. Okay. <laughs> no, I love it. And I'm sure I'm, I'm gobbling this up and, and I'm sure our, uh, our audience is too. Um, how would you say you split your time over the years in terms of playing versus doing work in the industry? Maybe you could sort of take it decade by decade. Well, in the um, in the 70s, all I did was play. In the 80s, all I did was play. It wasn't until 92 um, when I bought the Card Player magazine that I started getting involved with the industry side of it. Um, we put on the, um, we used to have something called the World Poker Industry Conference and hmm. And uh, that's that's no longer in existence. But uh, so in the 90s, I would say I was probably um, 80 percent business, 20 percent poker. And then uh, in the 2000s, it was probably um, 50 50. And now it's um, I, I work a lot less and I play more. That sounds like a pretty good balance to me. I like yeah. it. <laughs> I like it. That's good. Also, you know, a good perhaps. Um, you know, a chart to follow for those, you know, following that path, you know, I, I hope to get to the 90% playing 10% working time yes. sometime. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, yeah. You are one of poker's trailblazers. Uh, you've always been a very fierce advocate for showcasing and highlighting women in the game, as you've mentioned a couple of times now. Um, with the perspective of so many years of fighting that fight, how do you think our industry is doing uh, on that front? And, and what are the next steps you'd like to see happen? I think that there are a lot of very progressive managers out there who are also fighting the fight. Um, I I know we had a conference recently at the Bicycle Casino um, where we tried to figure out how we can get more women involved. Um, We have people like Lupe Soto, who runs the LIPS organization, who, um, you know, has campaigned and 
and made awareness of women's issues. And, and there's a lot of, um, you know, we have the Women's Poker Association, the Poker League of Nations, um, all these different women's groups. And I think, you know, they try to educate women. They try to educate uh, card rooms as to how to handle women's issues. Um, I've never had a lot of problems at the poker table, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, a lot of young, very gorgeous, attractive women, you know, they, they get, they have to put up with, with abuse sometimes. And um, I think it's important to train poker room staff, how to handle these things and how to be sensitive uh, to the fact that, um, you know, that they're not just women, but there's people in the card room, you know, whenever somebody cusses, you know, they might say the F word and the dealer will say, uh, sir, I have a lady at the table. And I, I say, you know what, you have people at the table. It's just general decency. It's not the fact that, you know, you have a woman here, just, you know, just behave. And, and just, it's a lot more fun when people are laughing. It's a lot easier to, to for them to lose money if they're having a good time. If, sure. if they're not having a good time and they're losing, they're probably going to quit. But if they're having a good time and they're losing, they're probably going to stay. And so it's, you know, that, that goes back to my three goals of winning money and uh, having fun and making sure my opponents have fun. I have always been what I call the protector of uh, um, at the table of, of people that, you know, are being picked on. You know, it really bothers me when this happens and I will speak up. And, you know, I, I remember one time this, this player put this horrible beat on somebody and the, the guy's like, how can you do that? You know, I said, well, it, you know, you can't win if you're not in, you know, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, another time, how can you play that hand? Well, I've got a good job. That's always my answer. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Thank you. Um, well, my final question before we get into the community questions, uh, and of course I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about yet another organization that you helped found and that you're still involved in today It's called Poker Gives. Uh, please tell us about it and the nonprofits ongoing activities. Yeah. Poker Gives was started by Mike Sexton and Lisa Tenner and Jan and me and um, quite a few years ago, actually, as a nonprofit to try to help raise funds from poker players to give to various charities. And we had uh, when we first started, we had four different charities. Um, Today, the organization has been taken over by Lupe Soto. It's like, you know, a few years ago, we I I said, you know, I, I need to retire from some of these things. I need to get off the TDA board. I need to get off the PPA board. I need to get, you know, I was on all these boards and, and I just wanted to play poker. And so um, I asked Lupe uh, if she would take it over and she did. And um, we still are very supportive. Poker Gives is a grassroots organization that gives back and they have a lot of different programs. They have military programs, you know, Nellis Air Force bases here in Las Vegas, they help them. We have, um, and Jan and I go and help feed the homeless on Monday nights a lot of times. Um, And so they have all these different things, but I I encourage um, poker players to donate to Poker Gives because uh, nobody in pokergives.org gets a salary. Nobody. It's all volunteers. And, you know, $20 means that $20 is going to be used to buy food for people or to buy school supplies for kids or, you know, um, every penny that comes in gets spent on um, on redistributing that money in the form of services or food or products or something to the needy. So um, a lot of organizations have all this overhead. Pokergives.org does not. 
It's a beautiful organization. Um, I, if someone who's familiar with it, who's uh, helped a little bit, you know, raise a little bit of funding for it, I know the good that it does. And, you know, it, it's kind of, it kind of harks back to what you originally said about why you got involved in the industry side of things is you wanted to give back as well beyond just taking, taking, taking at the poker table. Uh, and, you know, till today, you continue to do so. Even though you're retired 90% playing or 100% playing, you continue to to give back in, in so many ways, shapes uh, and forms. And it's a, a beautiful thing and so important I to understand that. people people that don't give back or that don't help other people i mean uh, you know i definitely believe that that as you're starting out in life you need to take care of yourself and then you need to take care of your family and then you need to take care of your immediate community but you know once you've established once you're established and you you are comfortable then why wouldn't you want to give back and help other people because it's a gift you give yourself. It really is rewarding. You know, when we go down there on Monday night, we feel good, you know, and, and we love, you know, on Christmas mornings going out and giving away, you know, gifts. And it's At just, six o'clock in the morning. You go there. Yeah, six Christmas. It is cold. <laughs> <laughs> so this past year, we weren't allowed to do it because of COVID. And actually I was thinking, Oh my God, I can sleep in and I don't have to be out there in uh, 40 degrees, you know, Christmas morning at 6 AM. And uh, then I felt bad for feeling that way. But <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. And obviously, you know, just I don't even need to say it, but it's just dropping some big time knowledge bombs and, and life lessons for us all. This is, you know, types of things we should all be aspiring to. Um, all right. Now we've reached the segment of the show where we turn to you guys, our Cards Chat community, to see what questions you wanted to ask our guests. We have a dedicated thread on the Cards Chat forum for this. So as we announce who our future guests will be, please be sure to send in your questions. And the first questions come from Shells. Thank you so much, Shells, for sending these in. Linda, what's your favorite movie? Um, to Sir With Love. There's an oldie. So, what's? To okay. Sir With Love. You've never heard of it, right? I have not. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> it was Starring Sydney, whom? Sydney Poitier. Okay. So. It probably came out in around 1970s. I don't know. But okay. That's my favorite. I'll look it up on IMDb. Saturday uh, Night Fever is, is up there. Anything okay. that has dancing in it, um, you know, I also like. Okay, that one I've certainly heard. Of. Um, next question from Shells. When was the moment in your life you could actually say poker was your job? 1980, when I, when I quit my job at the post office and moved to Las Vegas full time to be a professional poker player. PPE, okay. PPP, yay. Yeah. <laughs> um, next one, out of all of the awards and accolades that you've received, which one do you covet the most? Um, the World Poker Tour um, honors is, is probably uh, the most, um, the one that meant the most to me. They've, they've all meant a lot. Um, certainly winning my bracelet, you know, was something I'll never forget being put into the poker hall of fame is something I'll never forget. But I think uh, being the first member inducted into the honor society of the world poker tour uh, was very, very memorable. And it's funny because I remember Adam Pliska, who, who was the CEO president um, of, of the uh, world poker tour. He called me up and he said, you know, Linda, we're starting this um, world poker tour honors invitational society and and we're going to have this big banquet and everything and i thought he was calling to invite me and that mike sexton would be the first inductee right 
And uh, then he said, and you are going to be the first inductee. And I was just, uh, I mean, I couldn't even believe it. I was so honored. And, um, and in fact, Mike actually resigned from the poker tour a few months after that. And I always teased him. I said, well, just because I got in first doesn't mean you had to go and quit. You know, <laughs> um, that's, uh, you know, if I had to narrow it down to one, uh, that would be it. And I believe Mike was the second one, right? He, the recipient. No, um, no? was he second? He, he was either second or third, yeah. Sure. Or maybe Steve, perhaps, was the second one, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think I know the answer to this question, but Shells is asking, um, if you were stranded on an island with any person in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, it would definitely be my BFF, Jan Fisher. Yeah, <laughs> She makes me laugh every day. Um, you know, she's my person. You know, people people need to have a person that is their go-to person, and and that's it. You know, we we travel well together. Um, we're just so compatible and on the same page. And uh, so Jan, I, I would, you know, if I could have anyone, it would be her. Okay, so that answer I knew, but I don't know the answer to this follow-up from Shells. And what three? Forty-four I... triple D. Pardon me. Forty-four triple D. Okay. You've been waiting all the whole time to make me blush. I get it. Okay. Um, the question was, what three items would you take with you if you were deserted on an island with that person? Oh, well, I would uh, take some lumber and a boat builder and um, what else? Oh, my TiVo. Got to have a TiVo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, Freddie DR87, thank you very much for submitting this question. Um, when you won your first bracelet at the WSOP, did you buy into that event with your poker earnings in bankroll or with your personal savings? Um, with my poker earnings, I you know, I was a professional poker player. Um, for many, many years. And I always had a bankroll that I kept separate from my living expenses. So I uh, bought in with, with my poker bankroll. Okay, very cool. Have you ever been staked? That's just me, I'm asking, I'm curious. I have, um, back in, what was it the nineties? Chuck Humphrey staked a lot of players. And uh, I think he was one of the first people to do it. And uh, I was one of his quote unquote horses. And, um, you know, we, he did it the right way. We had contracts and, um, you know, it was very, very professional, but um, I think that's about the only time that I've been staked. And it was, it was short lived. He, he didn't stake people too long, you know, but he had a stable of players that he staked. Interesting. I, I, never, I never knew that. Okay, cool. Um, our last person submitting questions, Acid Burn FX. Thank you so much. Uh, always some of the most interesting questions. He's got three of them for you, Linda. Uh, first off, what is your worst habit? Worst habit? Um, wow. There's so many. <laughs> uh, staying up all night. You know, I, I would like to be on more normal hours, but I, you know, my body from all those years of playing poker, you know, all night doesn't want to go to bed before, you know, sunlight out. I understand that. And uh, no one realizes this, that, uh, you know, this interview is taking place at all, we're now almost 1 a.m. Las Vegas time. Oh, but I'm just getting ready. <laughs> yeah, I keep the same hours, but for me, it's almost, uh, what time is it? It's almost 11 o'clock in the morning. Goodness. Okay. Yeah. I'm also, uh, a bit, I guess worse than that, I'm a control freak. That's probably my worst habit. 
I am, as as you know, because you've seen me in action, but I'm definitely a control freak. I think I think it's okay. Things balance out. You're pretty good at everything. <laughs> um, second question from Acid Burn FX: Which law would you change if you could? Which uh, in poker or in um, there's you can go both ways. Oh my god! Um, uh, Told you, you always ask it's the most interesting questions. Very creative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would like to see the speed limits raised a little bit higher. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, that's the one thing that I, I do where I break the law constantly. So if we change that law, I wouldn't be breaking as much, probably. I like that. Interesting. You ever driven on the Autobahn in Germany? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> was yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. How fast did you go? Oh, I, I kept up. I mean, uh, you know, I was, <laughs> you know, every, Everything is in kilometers, but, um, you know, the equivalent probably 90 to 100. Ooh, okay. That's speeding through. Really a trailblazing, like we said. Yeah, there's a um, there. Yeah. The uh, final question we have for you today, Linda, uh, what historical event would you like to have witnessed? Um, wow. Uh, I would like to have witnessed... Martin Luther King's speech at the um, in Washington D.C. I think uh, I would have liked to have been part of that. Can I ask you to elaborate? Uh, I have been to many civil rights museums, and uh, that is something that's important to me. And uh, to feel to be able to feel his passion that day and the excitement would have um, been been amazing. Brilliant. Well, uh, guys, I, I kind of warned you. We only had an hour. Went a little bit over, but man, I just I feel like we could go for hours and hours more. You can delete the forty-four Triple D part. How about that? <laughs> we'll see. Well, like I said, after you know, when you have a whole long, in-depth conversation, the real person definitely comes out, and you certainly have. Um, thanks to everyone who sent in questions for Linda Johnson. And again, a friendly reminder to our Cards Chat community. We'd love to see you submit your questions for our future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. Please be sure to give us a good review on iTunes and spread the word via your social media channels if you'd like the show. Linda, again, I, w- I would do this for hours more if we could. Uh, we do have to cut it short. But before we let you go, is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners and people watching? Yes, I would like to tell them what a wonderful, amazing man you are. I, you know, I feel kind of like uh, a mom to you. And I am so proud that we have become friends and that you are the person that you are. I think you do an amazing job of writing. You do an amazing job of being a a poker ambassador. And um, I adore you. And and I look forward to your readers or listeners don't know that you stay in my home when you're here in Las Vegas. Um, and you have become like a son to me, and I am so proud of you. That's what I want to end with. I, I don't have the words, but but thank you. Uh, it's very meaningful, and uh, the feeling is very very mutual. And, and if there's one part we'll edit out, maybe it'll be that one. But thank you. It means a lot to me. Thank you very, very much, <laughs> Linda. Uh, thank you very much again, Linda. Thank you all for tuning in once again to another episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski. You can follow me on Twitter at CardPlayerLife. I wish you all a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community.